Listener Production. Is it because productivity is bad? Is it because some other factor? Can you flesh out why you don't have inflation falling more rapidly when you've got the economy being really weak? G'day, I'm Scott Phillips and welcome to The Good Oil. Now I'm going to spare you the preamble this time because not only do you know what The Good Oil is and what we do, you also know, hopefully, our guest today because he is someone who's been on this podcast before. In fact, back in December 2022, which feels like a lifetime ago. Now, Stephen Kukulis, of course, is the head of Market Economics. It is his business. He is a very, very influential and thoughtful economist, someone who you should always be following, particularly on Twitter if you're there. We'll talk a little bit about that later. But before we get to any of that, Stephen, welcome to The Good Oil. Good morning, Scott. Lovely to be here. And what a time to be talking about the economy, markets, and, well, all related things. Oh, mate, there's always something going on. I will, you said good morning, which is important. I will I will date stamp this as well. We're recording this on the 13th of February because such is the pace of economic change right now. By the time this makes it up on the feed, anything could have happened and probably has. So uh, it is important that we start with a, a bit of a, a line in the sand, a stake in the sand maybe, uh, to work out exactly where we're at. In that vein, mate, my first question is a very, very broad one, which I know you're very capable of answering. Simply, where are we at economically in your mind? Yeah, look, I, I think in a nutshell, the economy's slowing down. It's it's obvious. In fact, if we look at the last few uh, GDP numbers, we've gone from, this is in quarterly terms, a 0.9, a 0.5, a 0.4, a 0.2. That's slowing down. We get the December quarter numbers in a couple of weeks. So it looks like being another soggy number, whatever, whether it's a 0.2 or a 0.5, I don't know. But the economy's weak. And it sort of had to weaken. So in a sense, it's the slowdown we had to have. And that's why the Reserve Bank was hiking interest rates. Uh, so that slowdown is a necessary part of getting inflation lower. And on that point, inflation has come down. You know, again, at the end of 2022, we had our last conversation uh, using the quarterly data. Inflation was 7.8%. My goodness, that was, uh, I think it was a 32-year high, if I remember correctly. And through the course of last year, it's dropped to 4.1, so still above the target. But again, if we look at the last quarterly observation, 0.6% annualise that, so roughly multiplied by four, and it's a little bit more than that, you're at 2.5%-ish, which is why the Reserve Bank's on hold, even though Michelle Bullock, when she gave her talk a week or so ago, and the press conference and the statement on monetary policy were, were sort of like 50-50, could go up, could go down. But I think in reality, that's more to manage expectations rather than a hard call on the likely trajectory for interest rates through this year. So, uh, yeah, slowing economy, inflation falling, Unemployment creeping up as the economy slows down. RBA on hold with a very serious debate emerging about when they will start the cutting cycle and how many cuts there'll be. That's a great summary, mate. There's so much in that. I think we'll spend the rest of the podcast unpicking all of what you just said, which is which is awesome. Thank you. Let me start with the first one, mate. The big question, I suppose, or maybe maybe it isn't. You gave that that trend of GDP growth, that the slowing growth in the economy. And if you draw a straight line, at some point that crosses through zero and goes negative. Now, we can't draw straight lines, of course, and we shouldn't. Uh, I only say it as a bit of a straw man. But it is worth asking the question, mate, point two, I don't know, based on survey data, I don't know what the margin of error is, but you know that, that's not miles away from zero. The next one could be positive, could be negative. The line after that could be the same. At some point, we're hoping to turn things around. I am curious as to your thoughts on, I don't, I don't want to peg you down to a forecast, but you know, a recession can't be ruled out or can it be? 
certainly can't be ruled out. And that trajectory is really important. And in fact, uh, dare I say it, uh, this is, what do we call it? Backcasting as opposed to forecasting. September quarter, it looks like it's going to be revised lower. So that point two, because we know there's been revisions to the uh, goods trade. We know there's been revisions to the retail trade numbers themselves. And my quick observation is that for the September quarter, they're a bit weaker than they plugged in when they calculated the GDP. We know that the Bureau of Statistics, in their wisdom, do revise data as they get into more information. That's fine. And it already means that we could be really close to the you know, zero, zero. And, um, and in a sense, I don't, I try not to, anyway, get too hung up about this. It's not a recession. Are we having a recession? That's a label. All I know is that the weak economy is starting to impact on businesses, starting to impact on the unemployment rate. So is the economy growing fast enough to generate enough jobs and enough profits for our business sector to do okay, to hire people and to ramp up their capex and these sort of things. And I think, as I said, we had to have the slowdown. We've got it. And therefore, we need to, I think the narrow path that I think the former RBA governor was talking about between slowing the economy, getting inflation back to the target, but not causing that unemployment rate to spike too much is turning into a narrow path. Okay, we've got inflation lower. Can we now manage policy to ensure that the unemployment rate doesn't get much above the current peak forecast from the RBA, 4.4%. And I think that's the genuine issue. And that's and that's why I think the markets have got these rate cuts priced in. So recession, you know, negative GDP, well, certainly in per capita terms, this is the other big important point to mention. You know, we've had this incredible surge in population growth since the borders were reopened. In per capita terms, we've been going backwards for three consecutive quarters and probably a fourth when we get those numbers in a couple of weeks. I'm glad you brought up the per capita stuff. I'm, I'm even more glad you talked about the fact that you know a capital R recession really isn't the point, right? It's, it's are we are we better off or worse off? Whether it's per capita, whether it's unemployment, whether you know, all of those things matter, right? And you know. I, I've been critical of the population growth, but it's also true that population growth brings spending and brings investment. So it's not a one-way one-way story. Uh, are we are we able to employ those people gainfully? Do we have a, a better, stronger, not just economy, but society? Well, you and I will talk mostly about the economy. It's also important to put that in a context rather than as, as an end in itself. That circumstance that we're in, let me, let me ask the question differently. If you were to set a scorecard for the economy, and say, here's what success would look like. Here's the minimum standard, if you like, for what a healthy economy would look like. How do we do that? If it's not recession, because again, per capita, we're in a deep per capita recession and probably will be for, I don't know how long, maybe eventually we start cycling on some of that population growth and maybe things do start to settle a bit. But you know, there's possibly a couple of quarters at least of per capita recession to come. Uh, what is What does success look like economically? How should we think about what's enough? I'll start with the inflation story. And again, we had the revamp of the RBA, uh, that inquiry into the operation of the RBA last year, I think it was. And those um, reforms are slowly but steadily being introduced. You know, we've got the new timetable for the board meeting. They've got a new, more public face. You know, Michelle Bullock gave a press conference. Fantastic. I love it. Um, and, you know, we've got the new monetary policy policy board being introduced by the 1st of July. I believe it is on current timetables. So, in an ideal world, you do have inflation about two and a half percent. That is at a rate that allows your know, prices yeah, adjust according to supply and demand. They adjust according to productivity and they adjust according to technology. So there's many reasons why prices, but we found that on average and for the last 30 years and other central banks around the world, you know, we're not the lone rangers here in Australia. They have an inflation target that's a little bit positive, but not too high, not too low, the good old Goldilocks. 
So I think if we could get that inflation rate at two and a half percent, which the Reserve Bank wants to do, and it's in their charter, their revised charter, I think that's a good starting point. Then the question turns in, well, what do we want for the labour market and wages? A difficult number to pinpoint, but I think we have learned, and we are learning, not just here in Australia, but you look at the US economy with an unemployment rate still below 4%, um, and wages sort of not too bad, and the inflation rate coming down, and talk of Fed rate cuts in the US. So have we got to this situation where you know we could be really targeting or hoping for the unemployment rate to bounce around 4% rather than what we thought pre-pandemic of 5%? Yeah, well, don't forget one percentage point on the unemployment rate is about another 140,000 people who have a job. And, you know, with putting my, you know, Chardonnay socialist hat on, I think that's great that people have a job. You know, I like people to have a job. And then the other thing linked to that, and again, the RBA governor, when she was grilled on this um, in the last uh, week or 10 days or so, sort of said that, you know, if we can get productivity growth of 1% with an inflation rate of 2.5%, then wages growth of 35 ish percent without you know, pinpointing the decimal point is good. We get a, a steady, moderate, sustainable, critical word in the economics, sustainable increase in uh, real wages if we can get that. So I would sort of say that, yeah, we want enough economic growth to generate jobs, keep the unemployment rate at 4%, possibly a smidge lower, but that's uh, open to debate. Uh, and then getting inflation at two and a half. I think the economy, the business sector, the household sector, would better financial markets, would be pretty happy if that was able to be delivered, you know, over a, you know, two or three, four, five year period. That would be sort of like uh, that Harry Potter magic wand, you know, getting the growth rate and the economic fundamentals just right. I like it, mate. I like it. Uh, can I take you back to retail before we sort of move on to other things? Um, you mentioned retail spending being soft. Uh, it was a two point seven percent decline, I think, for the month of December, which is the most recent data we've got. Um, now, November was big because of Black Friday. There's a heap of seasonality there. We kind of need to take those two months together for a while until we really work out the kind of change in consumer spending. That being said, I'm going to suggest, and you will correct me if I'm wrong, uh, it's very hard for an economy to grow meaningfully when retail sales go backwards at 25 plus percent. Now, again, even if we give it 1.5 or 1 um, on the basis of the November growth, that's still that's still negative. Um, we saw JB Hi-Fi come out with negative sales growth or sales decline and, and, a, and a big profit fall of about 20% only yesterday. Again, we're recording this on the 13th of Feb. Uh that that's that's the bit that kind of makes me most concerned, mate, for two reasons. One is it's a massive chunk of GDP. The second, it's a massive employer. And if we do see that continue to falter, um, that strikes me as, if not the canary in the coal mine, I don't want to suggest it's it's inevitable or, or that we can't change course, but that's pretty scary, I thought. Yes. Consumer spending, retail spending, household consumption. There's a few things that we spend our money on that aren't in the retail sales, things like insurance, premiums, and but you know, retail sales are the up-to-date data. We know what's happening with them, and uh, they're they're a good guy. Don't get me wrong, but they do make up over half of GDP. So the other half's got to do some pretty heavy rowing to get to decent economic growth. If we consumers, you and me, and everybody listening to this, are hunkering down, we're being a bit cautious with our spending. You know, instead of going out a couple of nights a week, we only go out one night a week and leave it home. Well. That TV, look, it's okay. I'll wait another year before I upgrade it. I'd really love a new one, but I won't. So that these sort of decisions, so we're not, for many people, it's not like we're in uh, dire economic straits, but we are tightening our belt. Yeah, you know, we are changing our spending patterns. And, you know, and I, well, in recent weeks, and I've been chatting to a number of the big retailers on, on different matters, and it's 
fascinating listening to what they're saying. They're saying that, you know, sales are, uh, are slowing, no doubt, but people, instead of buying, I'll use this example, fillet steak are buying minced meat and having spag bowl at home rather than steak on the barbie. Or, you know, instead of buying, you know, lovely bin thrag nine, they're buying yellow tails. So it's only a glass of wine at the end of the day, you know, but they're just adjusting their spending patterns from expensive items to less expensive items because they're paying so much more on their mortgage and their real wages are still declining or have been, and they have been declining for several years. So you, you do want, you know, the, the, the driver of a, an economic recovery, you know, well, I know we've been a little bit gloomy for the first half of 2024. <laughs> I'm in your plan. <laughs> yeah. But if we're to get yep, a recovery, yep. it does require us consumers to sort of say, hang on, I'm actually doing a little bit better. And the only way we'll do that is feeling financially more secure through wages, through interest rate cuts and or lower inflation. So the price of everything that we see in the supermarkets and our church premiums are going up by five, seven, ten, whatever percent. Now, you talked about that, um, the inflation being uh, falling faster than most people give it credit for. I think the last quarterly number suggested, and you can't just multiply everything by four, but the last quarterly was annualized about a 2.4%, I think. Is that right? I mean, on, on, one, on one argument, and people will say, as people have said, well, we're kind of already where the RBA needs us to be. All we need to, has to see is for that to continue as is. We don't even really need a sequential fall as much as just a maintenance of that. I mean, again, price is still growing, but not as fast. If we could get that for, for three or four quarters, we're almost in the RBA's target band by the end of the year. Uh, the, the Reserve says 2025, but there's a pretty good chance we're there sooner than they think. I think they're being a little bit too gloomy with the trajectory of that deceleration in inflation on their latest forecast, which came out um, in their statement on monetary policy, I think it was the 9th of uh, February, so it was just last week. Because I'm, I'm looking around the world, I, I can sort of see inflation, again, the bulk of the decelerations occurred. No no question. We're not going to get that sort of easy drop in inflation from you know, supply chains being fixed and all those other things, which helped us get from 7.8 to 4. But we can get to that two and a half-ish percent midpoint of the target range as the economy slows down. And again, this this interesting question, really interesting question. When the economy's weak, if you're a business person, be it retail, be it cars, be it whatever, insurance premiums, we'll use that as another example, and no one's knocking on your door, how do you get your customers? How do you maintain your market share and customers? Even if you're a bank with, you know, riding mortgages and credit cards, whatever, you cut your prices to get customers in there and when the economy recovers you tweak up your margins a little bit to make better money so there's slowdown in the economy this is how economics works i love policy i love economics 101 the best subject i ever learned at uni was the was the most easy one when demand is weak you clear the market it firms get rid of their excessive inventories by discounting what's discounting lower inflation we're, we're in that area right now and so we're seeing some more discounting coming through and discounting means lower inflation. So, look, there are a million and one moving parts in the inflation equation, but many of them are moving to further the disinflation, I should say. Yeah. Awesome. Hey, let's go to the RBA itself. Um, you, you mentioned in, in passing the, the changes to the reserve. 
And I just want to get your, your general thoughts on both the idea and the execution. The three big changes in my mind, there'll be more, mate, and, and being more economically trained in mind, you'll, you'll, you'll fill in the gaps. But to me, the first was a re- reduction of 11 meetings a year to eight, every six weeks or so, rather than once a month, with the exception of February, which has been the case up until now. The second was this new monetary policy board, the, a new rate setting board. The main board won't set interest rates anymore, not happening yet, as you said. And lastly, the Michelle Bullock press conference, the first of its of its ilk. Can I can I take those in order, mate? The first thing, um, the 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 change to the number of meetings. I'm I'm on the fence on this one. Again, you're the expert, so I'll ask you. But I am mindful that we live in a twenty four seven agile world, having fewer opportunities to tweak the dials. While well, well, when we have a meeting, you're you're tempted to do something, so that that's the downside. The upside would be, I don't know, if we had twenty twenty one twenty two again. There would have been bigger shifts less frequently. I'm not sure if that's better or not. What's your take on the on the number of meetings and, and the frequency? The, the first thing, I think it's a good idea. Uh, we, we saw under the old regime that the first Tuesday of every calendar month, except January, uh, you know, that, that was the formula. And four times a year, so four of those 11 meetings, uh, given the way the Bureau of Statistics published their numbers, there is a little bit of a, a day to calendar tweak there. They met before the GDP numbers came out. They came out a day or two after the board meeting. Okay. And as I understand it, the RBA does not, is not privy to those numbers. They're, they're held in very tight secrecy for all the reasons. So the RBA board's sitting there. Oh, should we adjust rates up, down, leave them steady, whatever? Oh, let's leave them steady. Now comes a shockingly strong, weak GDP number the next day, which might have, oh, my goodness, that's something really interesting. The eight meetings are coinciding, or they've timed them, to be approximately two weeks after each quarterly GDP number. So they've got two weeks to analyze the data, revamp their forecasts, and two weeks after the quarterly CPI numbers come out. So again, they get that quarterly CPI number, and they look at it and digest, oh, that was higher than we thought, lower than we thought, rather than sort of flying blind. So in a sense, I think that's a good thing. Don't forget, Scott, that they've also got the possibility, and this did happen during the pandemic, just because they don't meet formally, they get on the old telephone, the Zoom meeting, and say, hey, guys, something big is going down. There's a bank collapse in the US or who knows what, who knows, yeah. Some X factor comes along. Let's get on the phone. We can cut rates tomorrow because something untoward or, you know, hike them, something untoward's happened. So they can adjust rates still in between meetings if circumstances dictate. But I like the idea of eight meetings here because it comes with more information and the fact that they they have the quarterly statement come out simultaneously with the announcement gives me a lot to read. <laughs> <laughs> You're a busy man. Let's go to the uh, let's go to the change to the monetary policy board. It's been my observation, mate, horribly generically and, and probably untrue in in large part. My observation tends to be that the business economists like the current board, the academic economists want this new board made up of more academics. I don't know if that, I don't know if that's true or not. Just from my observation of Twitter and, and newspapers, that seems to be kind of the way the uh, the camps have fallen. Um, you're very much more a, a business economist than an academic economist. Uh, I don't say that with any pejorative in either direction, just that's your background and, and what you tend to do more of. Um, with that with that disclosure or disclaimer, what is your thought about this new board? A good thing, a bad thing? Does it depend who's appointed to it? Is it Was it necessary in the first place? What's your, what's your take? I'll, I'll go back into why it was changed. And this is in no way um, a comment on the competence of the old-fashioned board members who were predominantly, not exclusively, but predominantly business people, hugely successful, 
hugely brilliant at their jobs. Not a question. The CEOs, ex-CEOs, people who work in banks and financial institutions, they were real top-tier caliber business people. No question. However, and this is and this is the this is the comment. Whether they had the monetary policy expertise to tweak rates up and down, and this sort of was a legacy of Dr. Lowe pre-pandemic when he refused to cut interest rates, or the board, sorry, sorry, not him, not him. The board refused to cut interest rates, even though inflation was below the target, the unemployment rate was five point something. We have month in, month out, quarter in, quarter out, and they did nothing. And I, and, and I think we now know that the board at the time just sort of rubber stamp. Oh, we'll leave them steady because we think uh, yeah, the current cash rate's already stimulating enough, even though uh, people like Andrew Lee and Zach Gross did some research on it and found out that it cost yeah, a couple hundred thousand jobs not cutting interest rates in that period, 2016 to 2019, just by the way. So I think the new board with some monetary policy, I haven't, we don't know who's been appointed yet to so the new board. I'm hoping, hoping that there's a lot of financial markets people who can sort of say, well, hey, now this is what the markets are telling us. Uh, and going back, if I, if I may, to just go back to Dr. Lowe when he was governor saying, you yeah, know, no rate hikes till 2024. I'm not I'm not having you go in for that, but that's, that's not the point of this comment. The point was in approximately October, November, when it was clear that inflation was not transitory, that there was something going on and markets started pricing in 150, 200 points of hikes. And he still said there's no change in interest rates until 2024 for several months further. Had, I don't know, a Bill Evans, a Sulin Ong, you know, someone like that been on the RBA board, they're market economists for people who don't know. Um, had they been on the board, they might have said, hey, hey, mate, you know, hang on, the market, and this is a global phenomenon too, it wasn't just the Australian bond market. Something's happening here, mate. You can't, you've got to change your rhetoric and change it pretty quickly. And they would have probably hiked a little bit earlier, got a little more ahead of the inflation problem. And so a board that has, oh, a, 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 you know, a non-business background, a money markets background, a financial markets background is probably preferable, assuming the right people are picked. Which goes to, I guess, po pose the question of why we need a second board in the first place rather than just changing the people on the current board. It feels almost like one of those organisational restructures where you don't want to sack the, the current people so you just create a new a new entity and, and kind of, you know, make, make that an easier <laughs> yeah. way. We're not sacking anyone. We're just creating a new board, putting new people on it. It's like, you kind of yeah, really just sack giving you less power. <laughs> kind of, yeah, right. That's exactly what it is. Um, so, uh, double, double barrel question. Firstly, do we need a board to make that decision or are the econocrats at the RBA good enough and, and we don't really need anything other than a rubber stamp and secondly give me a give me a quick if I said to you who which which sort of not not which people by name but if you had a six or eight member rate setting board how would you comprise how would you comprise it yeah on the first one the RBA is highly competent uh but like any massive institution don't forget they're massive they manage not just interest rates they're the anchor for the government so when the government buys foreign exchange to buy defense equipment or whatever you yeah, know Medicines for the pandemic or whatever, but they're the banker. And I suppose they could do their banking with a with another uh, private sector entity. That's fine. But I guess the nature of the confidentiality of the issues mean that they do a lot of stuff. They manage the payment system, so when we tap cards, use cash, they do a print notes. They do a lot of other stuff too. So they need a a board to look after that sort of stuff. And I think having a, a external people on that board, perfect. Yep, it's good and it's. As I understand, it's not an onerous task. It's, you know, a couple of days a month, whatever, and uh, uh, they, they manage that process. That's all very good. In terms of the makeup of the new board, as I, as I touched on, 
I think, in, in my view, there should be a weighting towards people with financial markets and capital markets experience who know how to read what what the markets are telling the RBA. Now, I've been around long enough. Sometimes, yeah, m- most of my job is look at the economy and then try to, what it, what it means for the financial markets. Oh, they're going to cut rates and lower rates. Sometimes I take a step back, have a cup of coffee. I think, I'm wrong. The markets have moved. What are the markets telling me about the economy? So, for example, if you're know, going back to that uh, late uh, 2022 uh, period where the bond market was selling off at an alarming, well, at a rapid pace, let's call it. And Dr. Lowe should have been reflecting on it. I don't mean to pick on them, but it's, it's just a classic, it's a textbook example. It's, what's the market telling me about the economy? Now, I've, I've got my view, and that's fine. And yeah, he was, he was okay to say that. I'm not knocking him for saying that. But where, where I am knocking him, Mate, the markets were screaming in your ear, something's going on. Inflation is not contained. There's something brewing here. So people who understand markets are good. I probably would have one person from, I'll call it the Labor, L-A-B-O-U-R, movement, talking about wages. You know, wages, productivity, these sort of things. They're a vital element of managing the economy. So whether it's the head of the ACT or someone else, I'm not sure, but someone with a Union type labour background, and certainly someone from the uh, from one of the business uh, representatives. They're the business people. They know what's going on in terms of profitability, labour costs. You know, interest rate pressures on their business, on you know the exchange rate pressures to the extent that they're importers, exporters, all the rest of it. Uh, so I'd have someone from the the business community, whether it's the BCA or some. I'm not sure, and I don't want to pinpoint any organisation, but it'd probably be, yeah predominantly. People from markets, someone from the labour movement, someone from the business sector, and you know whatever else is needed. One thing I would not have one type would, would be academics, and with all due respect to academic economists, they are fantastic. They stimulate the debate. They make me change how I view economics every week of the year, just about. But the RBA is full of four hundred magnificent academic economists. The only way you can get in there is actually having some wonderful first-class honours degree from, oh, I don't know, some amazing university. So they've got academic commerce. That's not their problem. Their problem is a business person, a union person, and financial markets people saying, hey, board, you know, Michelle Bullock, yeah, have, have a look at this thing. And, and around the table, I think they could have a lovely conversation about what is happening and then make up their mind whether to, to adjust rates or not. Hey, on the last thing that changed, Michelle Bullock uh, obviously gave that press conference. Did a remarkably good job, I thought. For someone who's a trained econocrat, I, I mate, I don't, I don't envy them that job. You know, if you've spent your life, you know, and I don't want to overly you know, be, be overly uh, uh, cruel or, or, or um, uh, I don't use too many stereotypes, but these, these guys are, I say guys in, in a non-gendered way, known for their spreadsheet excellence and their understanding of markets. All of a sudden, you've got to stand in front of a room of hardened journalists whose job it is to try and trip <laughs> yeah. up a, a, an interview <laughs> subject. Um, I don't know. I, I think that's probably the most stressful thing she's done in about 15 years. But I think she did a, a remarkable job. I am in favour of transparency, mate. I don't know that with the exception of probably, I'll, I'll name check them because I did a really good job, Jenny Duke and Michael Pascoe, both, by the way, uh, past guests of, of The Good Oil. So very happy to have had them on before. With the exception of those two guys, most of the questions, and again, I don't mean any disrespect to the other journos either, but most of the questions were either gotchas or looking for particular sound bites rather than wanting more information. I, I'm, I, I like the transparency. 
I'm a little bit worried we either end up with a press conference that tells us nothing or that becomes a bit of a, a dog and pony show for a, for a 15 second soundbite. Is, is it really as necessary and useful as we think it is? Uh, will it get better? Would you change it? Are you happy to keep it? What are, you, what are your thoughts on the first one through the... Yeah, through the I don't know how you, how you manage that. It's a, bit, a little bit like when the governor and the deputy or other assistant governors appear before the House of Representatives <laughs> yes, yes. Economics Committee. I think it's even worse, actually, just quietly. The well, pollies are much more keen to do the gotchas than the journos they're, they're are. They're trying to get the <laughs> governor to say, oh, economic policy from these guys is really bad and those guys are correct, really bad. Correct. Hang on. We, we, want to, we want that transparency, as you quite rightly put it, to, be, to drill into issues that, okay, maybe they don't have the space in the monetary policy state to flesh it out, or yeah, maybe there's an issue there that they didn't write about that is worth querying. Uh, you know, for example, the, I, to my recollection, uh, there was nothing much in there on house prices and the wealth effect. And, you know, house, you know, so it's not sort of house prices going up or down or something, but, you know, how does that feed into your deliberations? We know that in the last two years when house prices were going up, the board, or the RBA, acknowledged there was a positive wealth effect, which would feed into stronger consumption, which was one of the reasons why they, they were biased to hike interest rates. Fine. Well, if house prices come down, will that bias you to cut rates? Or, yeah, I don't know. I'm just sort of thinking of an example like, Questions like that are worth asking the governor rather than, oh, yes, I, I saw a couple of those um, last week and oh, you're, not, you're not asking the right questions and that's not me being a smart aleck. It's, you know, great opportunity. You've got an hour to sort of ask the RBA governor. Right, right, speak. exactly. <laughs> that is a question about, oh, you, and it's even not having, David, yeah, it's a constructive. Yeah, you've got your inflation forecast on the deceleration and in inflation. It's happened a little bit more acutely. You're being pretty stubborn, thinking that it's going to take another 18 months or two years to get to your target. You know, um, why do you have that resilience in inflation? Why don't you have it to 2% given the economy's in a per capita recession, as we discussed a short moment ago? You know, why do you still have it not going back as low? Is that because productivity is bad? Is it because some other factor? Can you flesh out why? You don't have inflation falling more rapidly when you've got the economy being really weak. Housing something you've been less worried about on Twitter, if I've read you correctly, than many other people. What I think is interesting, mate, is... You, I saw something was only yesterday, the day before you, you tweeted, that basically rents, I think it was, have gone less quickly than, than wages over a long period of time. It strikes me that it's the not the aggregate change that's been the issue, but the variability in that, that for a long part of that early period of that, say, I think it was 10 or so years you had the data for, maybe it was 15, for a long part of that, wages probably accelerated meaningfully faster than, than house prices. And we get used to you know that old lifestyle inflation. We spend all that money, and then when the housing or you know whether it's rent or mortgage kind of uptick comes, even though over a ten year period you say, well, it's variable and sometimes it's big and sometimes it's small, but overall it's okay. That's absolutely true. At the same time, as it's probably true that if you took over the last couple of years, that people are saying, well, hang on, I didn't have that much money set aside for this, and while I got a free ride for the first seven or so years, the last three have really hurt me. Is that, is that a fair assessment, or am I being too too glib? I think that I think that is that is pretty fair. And it's the speed of change too that happens. That you know, rents were basically flat for many years, then bang, they've shot up ten percent, ten percent in successive years, compounding arguably a little bit more, depending depending which numbers you use. But so, but the, but the question is a little bit like the mortgage cliff debate. You know, people who had that low rate mortgage should be dancing in the streets. 
they had a couple of years of really low interest rates when every other sucker who was on a variable rate was paying and paying and paying and paying. Okay, sure, they've got to jump from you know, two and a quarter percent to six percent or thereabouts when their when their mortgage rolls off. But they've had years in many instances of underpaying because they were smart enough to take out one of those fixed rate loans. So, an exa- for example, so rents have been low for a couple of years and now they've shot up. And yes, there's a shortage of property. That's an important part of it too. So it's, shortage is slightly different from the price. But anyway, um, although they obviously need to lend. I, I, I do, I would love there to be uh, better affordability, both prices and rents. And I keep coming back to this point. This is where the other guru on housing, Peter Tulip, who uh, from the Centre of Independent Studies, love his work. Disagree sometimes, but that's fantastic. He makes me bloody think about this topic, which I love. People who make me think and question, well, I might be wrong. I sometimes am. I often am. Um, but, you know, but so it, it is building properties to rent, to buy, to whatever. And, you know, the government, to, in its, in its, to its credit, and I'm not overemphasizing that just by the way, to its credit is actually wanting to build 1.2 million dwellings, you know, in the next five years. Very ambitious. It's a, it's a no dream, surely, right? It's a nice aspirational target. Yeah, it's, a, it's extremely yeah. ambitious. Yeah. <laughs> But, uh, yeah. but let's start high. And if we get to 1.1, that's a pretty damn good result, you know, better than 900,000 dwellings, given population change. So we do need to build more houses. We need to build them where people want to live. They're not out of whoop whoop. That's fine too, because they're probably going to be pretty cheap. But people want to live where there's a school, where there's a bus or a train. They want to live where there's a shopping centre near their place of work, ideally. And where it's got nice amenities with a park and, you know, something nearby. And if you build out, too far, they don't have those things. So that's where Peter's very good at sort of saying, oh, we need the infill. We need to uh, get the bomby old sites that have got some derelict industrial site, put on 50 units of townhouses or apartments, whatever. Yep, that's the solution. It's, it's supply and demand. Coming back to economics, I know one question. If we add to supply for a given level of demand, what happens to price? Comes down, whether that's house prices or rent. So that housing issue is because, yes, we had that surge in population. We didn't have any meaningful demand side, in fact, you know, a pretty pathetic demand side response. So prices for both houses and rents straight through the ceiling. In one reading of things, the RBA has not done so well. They deserve more opportunity or more more things to control. On the other on the other line of thinking, separating policy too far across too many regulators means a real lack of joined up thinking. I can't make remember if we talked about this last time. I suspect we may have, and if we have, and the answer is the same, let's move on. But one of the, I think one of the biggest failings during the lowering of interest rates in, as a response to the pandemic and just general economic slowness was APRA not increasing the buffer counter-cyclically to stop, you know, for all of your comment, you're absolutely right about people borrowing at, what, 2%, they should have been dancing in the street, the reset hurt them. The reality is that's also human nature. You mentioned sustainability before, you know, it's the old, the old joke about economists, you know, one hand in the freezer, one hand in the oven saying the, on average everything's okay. Um, that's that's true. That's true over time as well, right? At one hand, you say, "Well, hang on, I spent half the time in the freezer." Then I spent half the time in the, in the oven. Uh, it, it, it's still uncomfortable. It strikes me that having the RBA and APRA as separate organisations, and frankly, APRA doesn't have the same independence either statutorily or uh, or, or by convention. When we were when we were lending money at cheap rates to make money go around the economy. The impact on asset prices was probably, I would suspect, either a deliberate but more probably an unfortunate coincidental or, or consequent outcome. 
which could have been avoided with a little bit of forethought. And I've I've kind of come to the view of putting RBA's got one tool, or effectively one tool. You can put you know the jawbone and quantitative easing in, but effectively it's just rates. If you gave them the ability to control prudential standards, that would actually let them use different tools, but also change the impact of those tools. Would you be a fan of, of putting them back together or just simply having them work in concert or am I completely wrong about APRA? No, I, I like that idea. And I, I like uh, policy changes that lead to best outcomes, you know, that we're not, oh, yeah, monetary policy is everything we've got. Well, it is the minute, largely. Uh, and you're quite right that that lending, yeah, and we saw it, I think it was 2017 to 19, if I remember correctly, I might have my date slightly wrong. There, there was a bunch, of, there were a bunch of uh, macro prune uh, issues put in place and the housing market slowed down. Right, yes, Even that's right. The rush of lending to investors. If I remember correctly, that's I right. might have my numbers slightly wrong, but there was a series of macro prudential issues put in place, l- limiting the, the amount of money people could buy, having greater accountability on proving your income and your spending patterns and a few other bits and bobs too. And lo and behold, it slowed down. <laughs> exactly. It works. Um, and so having that as part of the, let's call it the overall monetary policy, not just interest rates, but monetary policy, how much you and I can borrow. I you know, go to the bank, can I borrow half a million bucks? Well, sorry, Stephen, you can't because, you know, you don't have the income or you don't have the assets or whatever the case may be. Oh, so I'm in fact saving myself from myself, but also managing the economy. So if you want to get the economy growing, but you desperately want to avoid house prices zooming, Cut rates, but then, but then you have a a segment of policy limiting, not stopping, but limiting the extent people can sort of leverage up and borrow up and bid up an extra fifty, hundred, two hundred grand for a property. So you control your housing market while you allow businesses to invest with the lower interest rates. You allow the economy productivity to boom or recover. Oh, massive fan of all arms. And I think, oh gosh. Probably going to go to a tangent here, but even use fiscal policy to manage. I was going to bring that up next, mate. So let's do Cycle, let's do exactly okay, that well, tangent. Let's fire on that one, but we should we should be allowing or encouraging the government. And this is not a partisan issue at all. The government of the day to tweak tax policy when inflation's high or inflation's too low to actually change the system. It's much fairer. Anyway, I'll let you fire away on that one. Mate, no, that you, you, you've beautifully. Uh, oh, I'm going to throw the question back at you. So it's it's, it's beautiful, uh, a beautiful segue. Um, two things on that. I have a suspicion. I think it's a reasonably well held one that the economy is still in structural deficit, which means the automatic stabilizers. And there's a bit of jargon. In this let's unpack that. The automatic stabilizers aren't working as well as they might be if there was a structurally balanced budget. In other words, it should be taking more money out of the economy when we're inflationary, super hot times, which would have done much of the RBA's work, not all the work at all, but a decent chunk of the work for it. So that's the first one. Second one, as you say, I don't know if it's ever going to be politically feasible because of the politics of our country, but you're right. I, I would I would suspect, again, I'm sorry to make it a comment rather than, rather than a question, but you'll, you'll add your thoughts. I would suspect that a, a, a structural balance helps the stabilizers work better. In other words, puts more money in the economy when it's needed, takes more out when it's not needed, which is exactly what they should be doing. And secondly, I completely agree with you. I think we've talked about before using superannuation or uh, contributions or GST or or even just active decisions. And again, the best chance of government doing it, I suppose, is making them semi-automatic so that no one gets blamed for it a little bit, like making the RBA independent itself. Um, God forbid if we didn't have an independent RBA, what the polys would have done over the last five or seven years on rates, right? Um, so, so, so you, you, yeah, t- tell, me, tell me your thoughts about the, the budget structural balance and also how you might use fiscal policy to help the RBA. 
as you touched on, I think you touched on two of the sort of more transparent ones that everyone, including me, can sort of fully understand. And that transparency in policy is really, really important. You know, interest rates, we see it. They announce we're up, we're down, or whatever. Tax policy gets a bit of a, a bit hidden from bracket, things like bracket. But, you know, you don't see it. You sort of don't even feel it in a funny way until it's, you know, oh, you look back and you go, oh, gee, I paid that much tax last year because I went to a higher tax bracket. Anyway, but what you can do on fiscal policy to, to, counter the cycle when the economy is booming or when it's weakening when it's booming you should have should have you could have a situation where you have a flexible uh superannuation guarantee so currently 11 percent. well we'll put it up to 13 percent for the next 12 months because the economy is overheating okay i get two percent taken out of my take-home pay because that superannuation guarantee has gone up but it's gone into my super fund um and so and when the economy slows down we'll, we'll reduce it so you, in a sense, it's sort of like a, an income tax change. The other one is the GST, have a, having a variable GST, because you know, when the economy is really weak, for example, let's cut the GST to 8%. And for every business now, it's just a click on a button on their computer. Very easy to do. Uh, when the economy's booming, make it 12%, you actually use the budget in a classic sense to, to adjust the automatic stabilizers there. And unlike interest rates, which only... This is the thing that's been coming up loud and clear for the last couple of years. Only impacts the poor devils who have got a big mortgage in particular. And the rest of the other two thirds of us think, oh, well, I don't care. You know, I don't necessarily care. It's only the people half a million or a million mortgage. Um, a GST hike impacts everybody. And that's much fairer. So whether you're, you know, the, the okay boomer person who bought their house for next to nothing is paid it off and, you know, all their money is different. Yeah, the interest, higher interest rates are great. I love them. Whereas the poor you know, young folk with a big mortgage, it, it hurts them. But putting up the GST does slow down the economy, does bring inflation back under control, and you have less, inevitably, or you adjust it so that you have less interest rate hikes, and it's fairer. Because someone like me without a mortgage, I'd pay some more more cost when the economy slow down so it's a very it, it, i think we should look at it as you said the politics mate the politics of this stuff i've been around long enough imagine going to election saying oh we're going to have a variable gst so when the economy's going to be paying more tax and that's the thing that makes me oh sad you know i love politics i love policy the, the venn diagram of the two with goodness doesn't overlap at all and we know here's good policy here's good politics mm-hmm. It's very rare that they overlap. And we know that, unfortunately, because of the way politics gets played, the policy of one party becomes... becomes it goes out the door when they see an opportunity. When the other guy brings it up, they can say, well, hang on, I don't want that anymore, and you're, you're bad for doing it. Yeah. But the GST itself was, yeah. was, it was, it was that. It makes very hard, exactly. and that's a problem, and, and it's, it's on all sides. Yeah, oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. And this is... Yes, as you know, that's the sad thing about politics. It's understandable, <laughs> but it's not good. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Mate, let's just finish off with a couple, if I could. Um your productivity diagnosis and and potential solution. I, you know what? I'm really, really glad Michelle Bullock brought it up. We haven't had a proper policy conversation about productivity for, I want to say, 20 years. Um, I, I, in my head, it was kind of like a Paul Keating the last time we really genuinely talked about it. Uh, I, I may be, I may be under, uh, undervaluing Peter Costello's improvement. I can't remember a conversation, but there may have been one. Um, in any case, those, either of those two gentlemen are, are way in the distant past, unfortunately, making you and I old. But uh, we haven't talked about it in ages. Now, all of a sudden, we are. What do we have to do to, to lift productivity in this country? Yeah. One, it's sort of interesting when, we've, when I've gone back and had a look at some of this productivity stuff. 
One of the reasons why we've had really bad productivity, and there's a lovely chart on the RBA chart pack that shows private sector business investment as a share of GDP. It's a straight line down from approximately 2010 to 2020, all the way down. Business investment, like buying machinery, is a really important part of productivity. One example, another example I like to use, you know, imagine you've got an iron ore mine and you've got, you know, 50 strong people with a, with a pick, shovel and a wheelbarrow, dig all this iron ore out. Well, hang on. Or you buy five mega trucks and a train line. Imagine how many tons of iron ore you can dig out every day. That's because the company bought a digger and a train and a truck. Perfect. Rather than a pick and shovel. So that says to me when we had, so one of the things, and again, it's not really the government that drives it. We do need private sector capex to be on a strong upswing. We need the business sector to be saying, yeah, I'm going to be buying new machinery and equipment, new IT, new artificial intelligence. You know, I don't understand how many of these things work, but Someone for the people that do, <laughs> do it. Yeah. Do more for less. Yeah. Get a machine to do something. Get a machine to do stuff if you can and free up that labour to do other things. Fine. Grow the economy so those people aren't on the unemployment scrap heap. So you grow the economy faster. When the economy grows faster, people get higher wages. So private sector capex remains, the, and it has been the missing link. It's just started to turn the last 18 months or so. I want to see that have five years, not five minutes, five years of five, seven, 10% annual growth compounding because businesses will be more efficient and that'll help your productivity. So that's one thing. But we, we always come back to infrastructure spend, and I know that actually we're scaling back a bit of infrastructure, but that's probably the infrastructure that's not very uh, enhancing for productivity. So knocking down a stadium and rebuilding it, you know, whatever. It's nice to go to the footy with a lovely stadium, but I don't know whether that's productivity enhancing, whereas building a better road, a better port, better electricity generation, you know, moving to renewables. Yeah, it's going to happen whether you like it or not, I think. And uh, so stuff like that that can enhance productivity is also part of what a government or governments, state and federal, can do. And skills, you know, we saw this and we're seeing this now to some extent, a little bit less extent as the economy slows down, having a skilled, educated, vibrant, dare I say the word agile, workforce. So that when the businesses does expand, they can say, oh, look, I need a couple of these people with skills X, Y, Z. Oh, you know, and we've got them in Australia, that we can hire them, pay them a good wage. Because getting a skilled person to do your do, to run your business will do a bloody good job at it. So education is an important thing. And we, uh, we sort of tend to, I know it's a long-run thing, yeah, teaching a kid to read and write and arithmetic when they're five doesn't yield benefits till they enter the workforce in many years to come. But it doesn't mean we don't do it. So there are a few things that the governments can do or the private sector can do and just the efficiency of how we pay for things, you know, getting the cash and what that's another question. Yeah, they're happening anyway. So some of them are probably going to enhance productivity, but, you know, we need, we need business investment. We need businesses to be stumbling up some serious cash to make their businesses better. They make more money too, by the way. But it's good for the economy. Let me be devil's advocate, that mate, with a, with a quick, just single question, which is: Is the decline in business investment equal to the the decline in a goods economy as opposed to a services economy? In other words, uh, a hairdresser yeah. probably can't cut two lots of hair at the same time. A physio <laughs> should be working on you and I at the same time. Or sharp scissors or something. Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I, the, the, as a services economy, is there a natural finish point to to how productive, or, or maybe is it just harder to become more productive because of that, or not? There's a little bit you know, on the services side. Again, another example. I like I like anecdotes and examples. You know, banking. You know, who writes a check? Who goes into a bank branch? Who 
you know, the shop owner who went in with a bag of notes and coins having sold, you know, 500 coffees and 10 sandwiches today. Yeah, tap, 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 tap. That's banking productivity. And, you know, it's fantastic. Absolutely fabulous. That, you know, paying a bill. Well, half the time it's automated. You just go click, 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 and there's a bill paid, you know, without leaving the desk and all that sort of stuff. That's productivity enhancing. It frees up everybody's time. So, and that's a services based industry. But you're quite right on things like haircuts or whatever. Uh, yeah, there's only so many, or nursing or teaching is the other one. I've got a class of 25 kids, whatever it is, I'm not quite sure. Um, if you make that 30 kids, what well, does the quality of the service decline because you're teaching so many kids or nursing? I look after 20 patients in a shift, whatever it is. I'll make that 25. Well, first of all, the poor nurse just you know, can't cope. You know, it's just too much work. And the quality of service that each patient's getting is diminished. So on on some of those, like teaching, nursing, aged care, these sort of like labour-intensive businesses or industries, whatever, uh, very hard to get extra productivity um, and that might be part of the accounting measurement problem that we're seeing. But there are plenty of examples through CapEx, investment, IT, AI, that we can keep taking some steps in the right direction anyway. Mate, uh, when we uh, when we chatted before we started this podcast, you said, I haven't talked about anything. I noticed you've been hot on this sovereign wealth fund thing, Scott. I think you're wrong. We well, you didn't exactly say that. You were very polite. But uh, yeah. you have, you have no, a different no, no. take on it, mate. And so I, I just wanted to kind of – we've covered a lot of ground. Uh, just finish by asking you about I, I so I'll, I'll set it up just because uh, you, you put in that context. Uh, my take is we put a lot of bring a lot of resources out of the ground in particular. Uh, we sell them for a one-off benefit after having inherited them from our forebears and their forebears and uh, the original inhabitants. And when no one was here, those those minerals were still here. We take them out of the ground. We sell them once. We use it on recurrent spending or current year spending. Not much to show for it. At some point, we end up with empty holes and and uh, empty oil wells. It's it's some future time. And we might look back and go like Norway, hey, we could have actually had a fund that continues to effectively turn those perpetual physical assets into perpetual financial assets and can actually deliver value for the country, our grandkids, their grandkids and their grandkids for decades and generations to come. And you've gone, yeah, not quite. Tell us tell us your take not on quite. the sovereign wealth fund. Yeah. And look, and putting aside the future fund, which mm. is not big as a share of the economy. Look, it's, it's very important, don't get me wrong. But the way that I look at it, and this is, I don't disagree with you in the concept, because yes, we, we only dig these resources out of the ground once, sell them, they've gone forever. But the concept of each of us having a superannuation account is like we've got 20 million sovereign wealth funds. Your super, my super, everybody listening. Whether you're a super account, account, whether you're just a young person, you've only got a few bucks in it, or you're an old person with you know mega bucks in it. The fact that we've got shares, in, you know, just got a normal balance fund, we've got shares in the mining companies who have done very well and paid, you know, the last thing is massive dividends. That's, you're, you're a sovereign wealth fund. <laughs> um, and so, and that's about to hit $4 trillion. I had a little look at the numbers yesterday. I think at the end of September quarter, it was around about $3.6 trillion was in, in superannuation. With what has happened in markets through the December quarter, and here we are in February. The ASX, I believe, is up a bit today or whatever. You know, who cares, who cares on one day? I know you don't care about daily <laughs> well done, thank I you. know you're a big advocate of that, thank but you. yeah, yep. whatever. Yeah, it but it's work. done, they've done all the bonds have rallied back a bit the last little while. Yeah, property prices, international equities have done well, whatever. So I dare say that we're almost at $4 trillion. And that's you and me and everybody listening. It's, that's our sovereign wealth fund. So while I may not, when I retire, get the... Norwegian government, if I was a Norwegian citizen, paying for my health care and my pension and my rent assistant for, you know, the 
uh, low-income earners and all the rest of it. I've got a sovereign wealth fund, so I'm not going to call on the public purse. Uh, I'm going to be paying my own for my own retirement because because of compulsory superannuation implemented 30-something years ago. So I think, yeah, and we've got that big chunk of cash. It's about 150% of GDP now, you know, so it's a, it's a big amount of money and a big share of the economy. Uh, yes, I'd like more, more savings and more of that to be allocated to the future fund or some sort of state equivalent of that. But I don't think we're as bad as as bad as we make out because we have the superannuation industry. That's very fair. Man, I'm going to ask you one last question if I can squeeze it in only because you mentioned super and you mentioned some of the using it for retirement things. We don't tax super particularly uh, significantly and there's very little in the way of rules on when you can use it and if you were to blow it all on, you know, the, the fifth at Randwick or, uh, or, or, or you know, a, a fantastic holiday or something, you come back and say, that was fun, but uh, Treasurer Chalmers, I'd like a pension now, please. It, it does strike me that I, I completely – I take your point entirely. It does strike me though that super – the accumulation thing is, is beautifully done. Once you hit retirement, it kind of all goes a bit peak tong. Yeah. Look, I, I think that's important too. And well, it's either that or people uh, use it as a means of leaving money to their kids. You know, they don't well, want to take off the house. Out, so they, <laughs> they die with a million bucks or some yeah. Yeah, huge amount of money in their super fund. Whereas, in, you know, the theory, as you know better than anybody, goodness me, you know, you get your super fund and you run it down. And the theory on the day you die, you run out of your last dollar. But of course, that doesn't happen. So you always need a little bit of a buffer. Of course you do. Of course you do. Um, but in theory, you take money out of the fund. This is the thing that, well, Take the appropriate amount of money out. So it's got to be both a minimum and a maximum amount brought out. And I think that that's the sort of the rule. And I know we have some rules surrounding parts of that, and it does change from year to year according to how the markets have gone and a few other bits and bobs. But really, the the rundown phase has got to be, what's the word, better, better regulated. So either people don't blow it all in race five at Randwick, number seven, by the yeah. way. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> Write that down. <laughs> or, or they don't accumulate it and give a tax-free benefit to their kids, you know, which, again, is very unfair when they've been you know, claiming you know, all these wonderful tax breaks through the super fund. So I, th- I think the, the, the rundown phase or the drawdown phase probably just needs a little bit more either, you know, tweaking in terms of the regulations or the tax treatment of it, of course, which is another thing that could be looked at. And I'm, I'm sure Jim Chalmers is looking at it. So... That's on the budget on the 14th of May, just by the way, if we can segue to, to that uh, next event. Very good. Mate, you have been incredibly generous with your time. I always thoroughly enjoy speaking to you. You're very well informed. You have a great range of views on a whole lot of topics. So I really appreciate you joining me again for The Good Oil. Uh, mate, um, you're on Twitter at The Kook. Where else can people get uh, your stuff? Well, just on LinkedIn. Stephen could call us very easy there. And look, wonderful opportunity. Love chatting to you. Love following you on Twitter. I see your stuff. And sometimes... Most of the time, I think, oh, that's a bloody good idea. Do you know what, mate? Do you know what, Scott? Disagreeing on things like economics and markets is the most healthy thing you can have because if we all knew the right answer, we'd be on that boat in Bermuda <laughs> sipping Dom Perignon. And I'm not, unfortunately. No, really. Okay. <laughs> that discussion leads to better results. So, you know, having a hearty, healthy disagreement is a good thing. Love it, mate. That is a wonderful way to finish. Do follow Stephen on Twitter. Follow him on LinkedIn. You will be smarter and better informed for it. Stephen Kukoulos, thank you for joining me on The Good Oil. Thanks, Scott. Thank you, mate. This podcast is hosted by me, Scott Phillips, produced by Ed Gooden, and imaged by Link Kelly. Listener.